You're listening to The 66, a podcast where we go through the books of the Bible one at a time. Right now we are getting close, actually, I was going to say we're in the middle, but we're getting close to the end of our study of Jeremiah. Three, this one and two more episodes, right? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. We're really close. Man, we're going to start working on the next one pretty soon. Yeah, I have no idea what we're doing next. Oh, great. Well, there's something for us to look forward to. Uh, but today we are going to be in Jeremiah chapters 37 and 38. Um, I'm Andrew Kingsley with Drew Kaiser. And what we're going to do, if you're listening to us for the first time, we are going to take a few minutes here to start with to give you a basic outline of the chapters. Then we'll take a break and we'll come back and we'll dig a little bit deeper. Then we'll take another break and come back and apply some things to our lives from what we have read to kind of make it uh, to make it real, I guess, learn a lesson, use it in our everyday life. Uh, but to start off with, Drew, you've got a really cool outline, but before we get into it, I want to just kind of remind everybody of the background here. When we start in chapter 37, we're somewhere around the time of 588. Uh, Zedekiah's reign is going to end in just the next few years because Nebuchadnezzar is going to come in and Israel is actually going to fall, excuse me, Judah is actually going to fall in chapter 39, uh, which is right after what we're going to read in 37 and 38. So we're near the end of Zedekiah's reign. Zedekiah, we know, is the final king of Judah all the way up until Jesus is going to come in the New Testament. We mentioned that in a previous episode. But at this time, picture this scene in your mind. Babylon, the armies of Babylon are outside Jerusalem laying siege to the city. We're going to read about that and we'll see some evidence for it. But just to keep in mind, the armies of Babylon are outside the walls sieging the city, similar to a scenario you saw with Assyria and Hezekiah over in the book of Isaiah. Yeah, but Uh, with a different ending. Right, I was about to say a very, very different ending and likely because, well, largely because of the two different kings. Hezekiah was the king who ultimately chose uh, to trust in God at the end of Isaiah, what we see there. Uh, Hezekiah, we know, is a good king. But Zedekiah, Drew, and you've pretty much outlined these two chapters based along these lines, is not quite as admirable as Hezekiah. He's one of the weakest leaders in the Bible. Right. I mean, of all the awful kings that we have presented to us, he is one of the weakest there are certainly kings that are perhaps worse in terms of their moral character. Um, you know, maybe King Ahab was a nastier guy than Zedekiah, but he was a stronger leader. You know, I don't know, Jezebel kind of led him by the nose. So, poor example, but uh, Je- Jeroboam, Even for though example, he still was a stronger leader, even though I, yeah, he was I, led by I still stand by that, that he was a stronger leader. Zedekiah is one of the weakest leaders I've ever read about, which is fitting for the final king of Judah. Let's not forget that momentous thing, Mm -hmm. is that we're looking at the final king, the very last king until, uh, you know, maybe some of the Maccabean kings hundreds of years later. It's a good Bible trivia question. Yeah, look that up, kids. Mm -hmm. But uh, we started out, we were going to call this episode The Cistern. Because there is this dry well or a cistern that is central to the narrative of today's lesson. But we changed our minds and we decided to call it the many faces of Zedekiah. 
because it's just as I, I think it's more interesting that way. What you have is a psychological analysis of Zedekiah, and it doesn't he doesn't come out too good when you look at it. And our outline of our reading today is based on the very different kinds of Zedekiahs you get. There are mm-hmm. six of them. And the the reading comes from Jeremiah chapters 37 and 38. So we had a little of Zedekiah in the last episode, but we're really going to get to know him in this episode. And I think then the next episode we're going to read about the downfall of the city of Jerusalem and the final stage of captivity that you have with, with Judah. Um, let's start with Zedekiah number one. We're just going to enumerate the different <laughs> Zedekiahs that we uh, encounter in this reading. So here's Zedekiah number one. We're going to call him Zedekiah talking, not listening. This is chapter 37, verse 1, which begins saying, Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, made king in the land of Judah, reigned instead of Kaniah. Kaniah would be Jehoiachin, who is still alive, but is in captivity. And I think we said, if I remember correctly, that he spent 37 years in captivity in Babylon and outlived all these other kings, but he didn't reign but just about three months. But he was the king previous to Zedekiah. Now we have Zedekiah, who had been put there by Nebuchadnezzar to be a pro-Babylonian king. Uh, Verse 2, though, says, But neither he nor his servants nor the people of the land listened to the words of the Lord that that he spoke through Jeremiah the prophet. Now verse 3 says, King Zedekiah sent Jehuchal, the son of Shelemiah, and Zephaniah the priest, the son of Maaseiah, to Jeremiah the prophet, saying, Please pray for us to the king, to the Lord our God. Now, take a good look at the contrast between verse 2 and verse 3. Because in verse 2 you have the idea that Zedekiah did not listen to the words of the Lord through Jeremiah. But in verse 3 you have Zedekiah asking Jeremiah to pray for him to the Lord. And in the New American Standard Bible, verse 3 begins with the word yet, which I think enhances the understanding there. So it basically can be paraphrased this way. Zedekiah would not listen to the words of the Lord, yet he asked Jeremiah to pray for him. What I call that is talking, not listening. He's, He's praying like a lot of people pray today without any regard to the will of the Lord. So he doesn't care what God has to say to him, but he has a few things to say to God. So verse 4 says, Jeremiah was still going in and out among the people, for he had not yet been put in prison. The army of Pharaoh had come out of Egypt, and when the Chaldeans who were besieging Jerusalem heard news about them, they withdrew from Jerusalem. So here's what they're probably thinking. They probably asked Jeremiah to pray that the Lord would deliver them from the siege that you referred to on behalf of the Chaldeans or the Babylonians. Jeremiah prays, or maybe he didn't pray. We don't know. It doesn't say. But then Egypt comes in, as it has done in the past, and the Chaldeans regroup. They withdraw. So here is what's on the mind of Zedekiah and his followers. Hey, this prayer worked. God listened. He's pulling the Babylonians back. We're not going to be destroyed. We've been saved. End of story. Now we can live out our days in peace and prosperity. But the Lord comes to Jeremiah in the verses that follow, and he says, This is not what they think it is. 
I'm still going to destroy them. Now, several times the story of the end of Jerusalem is told. And I made a decision not to read all of those passages because we've already seen this prophecy over and over and over again in previous chapters. Right. Where the Lord says, you can, if you repent, I will save you. If you do not repent, the city will be destroyed, the temple will be leveled, and you will be taken into captivity. So despite the withdrawal, he says this is a temporary withdrawal. They will return if you do not repent and finish the job, regardless of Egypt. Don't be deceived. Right here. Verse 10 is awesome. He says, Even if you should defeat the whole army of the Chaldeans who are fighting against you, and there remained of them only wounded men, every man in his tent, (laughs) they would rise up and burn the city with fire. So even if, I mean, (laughs) even if it looks like you've defeated them, whoever's left, they're still going to come in and burn the city. They may be... You know, missing limbs and starving to death. Yeah, but they're going to burn it down. You know, they they can still defeat you because it's yeah. not the power of the Babylonians that's at work here. Mm. It's the power of the Lord. Yeah. So that's the first Zedekiah is Zedekiah talking, not listening. Here's Zedekiah number two. This is Zedekiah not doing any talking. And this is where we really see how weak he is. Verse 11 says that when the Chaldean army had withdrawn from Jerusalem at the approach of Pharaoh's army, Jeremiah set out from Jerusalem to go to the land of Benjamin to receive his portion there among the people. When he was at the Benjamin gate, a sentry there named Erijah, the son of Shelemiah, son of Hananiah, I'm wondering if this is the rogue prophet Hananiah, I don't know, but we've studied this guy before, and he had, if it was the the son of that rogue prophet that Jeremiah predicted his death, then he had kind of a motive for being mean to Jeremiah. This guy seized Jeremiah the prophet, saying, You are deserting to the Chaldeans. And Jeremiah said, It is a lie. I'm not deserting to the Chaldeans. But Erijah would not listen to him and seized Jeremiah and brought him to the officials. And the officials were enraged at Jeremiah. And they beat him and imprisoned him in the house of Jonathan the secretary, for it had been made a prison. They're taking houses now and transforming them into prisons because they, you know, Jerusalem's under siege and they're probably putting a lot more people in prison than usual, running out of room in the city. Um, I think it's interesting we're seeing a sea change in the officials. Many, many moons ago, we talked about how the officials sided with Jeremiah against the priests and the prophets. Right. They were actually kind of the good guys who said, hey, you remember Micah? Micah told the truth, and Hezekiah listened to him, and mm-hmm. everybody was saved. Well, there's a different group of officials or advisors to the king now, and they've thrown Jeremiah into prison. So what's interesting is through that whole thing, Zedekiah is silent. You don't hear from him. His officials are acting on his behalf. That's Zedekiah number two, not doing any talking. Zedekiah number three is Zedekiah whispering. Okay, so he's talking a little bit, but not much. Um, Verse 16 says that when Jeremiah had come to the dungeon cells and remained there many days, King Zedekiah sent for him and received him. Now look at this. The king questioned him secretly in his house and said... Is there any word from the Lord? Jeremiah said, There is. And then he gives the same thing that, you know, we've been reading about 
that Babylon will come and destroy the people if they do not repent. But I think it's interesting that Jeremiah asks him in verse 18, why did you put me in prison? So, you know, Zedekiah, he was silent in that last portion and his officials put Jeremiah in prison. But when it came down to it, Jeremiah recognized that Zedekiah was responsible for that. Yeah. So he says, why did you put me in prison? And uh, Zedekiah winds up releasing him from prison and letting him dwell in the uh, court of the guard and providing with provisions of bread. That is, until they ran out of bread in the city, which would happen soon. Mm-hmm. Um, we're guessing that the court of the guard was better living quarters than the house of Jonathan the secretary, which had been made into a oh, yeah. dungeon or a prison, uh, just by the fact that Jeremiah seemed happier there than he did in the other place. So you have Zedekiah in secret asking for the word of the Lord. He's whispering now. Okay, let's get to chapter 38 and the fourth Zedekiah. Another kind of Zedekiah rises up. This is Zedekiah letting others do the talking. I'd say Zedekiah number four looks a lot like Zedekiah number two, except he looks even weaker to me because, you know, when he's not there, you just don't know what kind of a coward he is. But now he's interacting with these officials, and you see that he is... He is just a coward before these officials, even though he's the king. Uh, Let's read a few verses here. Verse 4 says, The official said to the king, Let this man, this Jeremiah, be put to death, for he is weakening the hands of the soldiers who are left in this city and the hands of all the people by speaking such words to them. For this man is not seeking the welfare of this people, but their harm. King Zedekiah said, Behold, he is in your hands. For the king can do nothing against you. Yes, he can. The king <laughs> the king, can do nothing against you. So they took Jeremiah and cast him into the cistern of Malchiah, the king's son, which was in the court of the guard, letting Jeremiah down by ropes. And there was no water in the cistern, but only mud, and Jeremiah sank in the mud. So that's a very sad part of the story, and we'll we'll talk about that some more mm-hmm. later. Let's get to Zedekiah number five. This is Zedekiah listening to wise counsel. And we're introduced to a new character here, Ebed Melech. He's an Ethiopian eunuch, kind of like in the New Testament. We have an Ethiopian eunuch. Uh, verse seven says that when Ebed Melech, the Ethiopian, a eunuch who was in the king's house, heard that they had put Jeremiah into the cistern, the king was sitting in the Benjamin gate, Ebed-Melech went from the king's house and said to the king, My lord the king, these men have done evil in all that they did to Jeremiah the prophet by casting him into the cistern. He will die there of hunger, for there is no bread left in the city. I want you to see what an admirable man this Ebed-Melech is. He recognizes that it's evil to do harm to the lord's prophet. Mm -hmm. So he's one of the very few men in the city recognized Jeremiah as a true prophet. So verse 10 says, Then the king commanded Ebed-Melech the Ethiopian, Take 30 men with you from here. Not because it takes 30 men to do the job of getting him out of the cistern, but because it's dangerous to get him out of the cistern, because the officials could start a fight with them. Take 30 men, lift Jeremiah the prophet out of the cistern before he dies. So Ebed-Melech took the men with him, And they went to the house of the king to a wardrobe in the storehouse and took from there old rags and worn out clothes which 
he let down to Jeremiah in the cistern by ropes. Then Ebed-Melech the Ethiopian said to Jeremiah, Put the rags and clothes, clo- clothes between your armpits and the ropes. Jeremiah did so. So you see a lot of care and concern going into Jeremiah here. Then they drew Jeremiah up with the ropes and lifted him out of the cistern, and Jeremiah remained in the court of the guard. Ready for the last Zedekiah? I believe so, yes. Okay, so this is Zedekiah number six. This is Zedekiah listening to the Lord in secret. Listening to the Lord in secret. Look at verses 14 through 16. King Zedekiah sent for Jeremiah the prophet and received him at the third entrance of the temple of the Lord. The king said to Jeremiah, I will ask you a question. Hide nothing from me. pay, Pay attention to that. Hide nothing from me. And Jeremiah said to Zedekiah, If I tell you, will you not surely put me to death? And if I give you a counsel, you will not listen to me. Then King Zedekiah swore secretly to Jeremiah, As the Lord lives who made our souls, I will not put you to death or deliver you into the hand of these men. Excuse me. (laughs) It's hard to read about Zedekiah without choking. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Into the hand of these men who seek your life. So what a hypocrite. He brings Jeremiah in. He says, I'm the king. Hide nothing from me. And then he swears secretly to Jeremiah that he won't put him into the hands of the men who seek his life. What kind of a promise is that? I mean, if it's in secret, then as soon as these guys come and want to kill Jeremiah, what's he going to do? He's going to cave. Nevertheless, Jeremiah gives him the word of the Lord, which is the same word of the Lord that he has been giving chapter after chapter after chapter, repent or perish. That's the bottom line. And you're hoping this time he's going to listen. Because right. it looks like maybe he will. Right. But just from the sheer fact of he's getting, it looks like he's getting really desperate. You know, I read through these chapters and it looks like a guy, um, in this commentary that I read earlier, he put it really well. I thought he compared Zedekiah to a guy drowning, just reaching for anything that would keep him afloat. Mm-hmm. And so I'm reading a very desperate Zedekiah here looking for anything. And you think, okay, maybe, you know, he's tried the false prophets. He's tried the lies of peace. Maybe now he will listen to the word of God and just follow that through. Because at this point, what does he have to lose? You know, Babylon's right outside the door and it's just a matter of time. Jeremiah's starting to look pretty smart at this point. Yeah, I mean, Israel's almost out of resources, out of food, out of water. Uh, they can't leave the city to go and get any more rations for the people. It's about to get bad, and you think that he might at least just see what happens if he obeys God. Well, let's see if he does. All right. Verse 24. Then Zedekiah said to Jeremiah, Let no one know of these words, and you shall not die. So Jeremiah gives him the truth, and he puts a lid on it. Mm-hmm. Don't tell anybody the truth. If the officials hear that I have spoken with you and come to you and say to you, Tell us what you said to the king and what the king said to you. Hide nothing from us and we will not put you to death. Then you shall say to them, I made a humble plea to the king that he would not send me back to the house of Jonathan to die there. That's the prison. Then all the officials came to Jeremiah and asked him, and he answered them as the king had instructed him. So they stopped speaking with him, for the conversation had not been overheard. And Jeremiah remained in the court of the guard until the day that Jerusalem was taken. So he listened to the Lord, you could say, in one sense. 
but he listened to them, listened to him in secret, which didn't do him any good. So here are the six Zedekiahs. I'm going to summarize them again because there were a right. lot of different kinds of Zedekiahs here. Yeah. All of them weak, vacillating, cowardly kings. But mm-hmm. you had Zedekiah number one, Zedekiah doing all the talking. Zedekiah number two, Zedekiah not doing any talking. Zedekiah number three, that's Zedekiah whispering. Zedekiah number four, Zedekiah letting others do the talking. Zedekiah number five, Zedekiah listening to wise counsel. That's my favorite one. Yeah, uh, if I had it's to the choose. only good one. And then Zedekiah number six, Zedekiah listening to the Lord in secret. So that's what we have leading Judah at the end of their days. back with uh, some thought questions, mainly one, and uh, maybe some other deeper things that we didn't have time to get into with the reading. But here is the big question that I have when it comes to, you know, really trying to parse this out and understand what's going on. In chapter 38, they decide to execute Jeremiah. Now, this is what the officials say. They, you know, they say, um... I've got to find my place here, but, um, you know, let this man, verse 4, let this man be put to death. And then what do they do? They put him in a cistern. Now, so my question, Andrew, and I'd like to hear what you have to say, why death by cistern? You know, it's it's a weird question. I'm, mm-hmm. You know, I'm thinking maybe it's this. You know, we leave our women out of a lot of things. Mm-hmm. The brethren are always doing things. Why not let the cistern do some things sometimes? Hmm. Funny. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I was expecting you to laugh more than that. Well, I mean... You have your cistern, so, you have your brethren. Nice. And you... I mean, I gave you like a, a smirk. A smirk. <laughs> it's, like a, it's like a... Oh, that's a... Oh, I that's guess. a joke, huh? Yeah, it's not like a right. lol joke. Oh. Well, I'd, I'd saved it, you know, I'd yeah. make it in the break. Because it was good, I mean, it's witty. Yeah. It's good. It's very... I mean, that get a lot of laughs in the pulpit. I mean, you know, it's a, No, it's I, a good I never... <laughs> it's a great preacher joke. I really... It's, except for my wife and a couple other faithful friends. <laughs> Nobody's good. I don't get many laughs from the pulpit. Yeah. And I guess we're seeing why right now. I mean, anyway, it's good. Let's, but it's a serious question. Yeah, let's uh, move on. Why did they choose this particular... I guess when you talk to our listeners about what a cistern is... Yeah. Because, you know, I had to look into that. I, I don't... And he's in the court of the guard, and he's throwing the cistern, and then he's back in the court of the guard again. So mm-hmm. that means to me that this is something localized to that area. Mm-hmm. And I believe that you're in a city like this that's enclosed for water, a lot of big living areas and maybe in some public squares 
there were wells or cisterns that -hmm. were there to supply fresh water to the people. And in days of a siege like this, they would run dry because they were being overused. Nobody was bringing any water from outside the city. They were being overused, and um, there was, you know, depleted. And so that's why, you know, there was no water, verse 6, in the cistern, but only mud in Jeremiah sank in the mud. Mm -hmm. So that's what a cistern is. It's basically a a well, and in this particular case, it's a dry well with mud at the bottom of it. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, it seems like maybe not the most efficient way to kill somebody, because Mm -hmm. how is a guy going to die in a muddy cistern? He can't even drown in it. Yeah. It's starvation, right? Yeah. You're not adding much to this conversation here. Well, I just... I'm trying to do a little back and forth here. Well, uh, I mean, I think you're exactly right. They're under siege, so there's not... There's obviously no water in the well, or not much, uh, for the reasons that you brought up. And then he's not going to be given... And I think when you see... I didn't want to get ahead of you, because I know when uh, Evid Melek's going to start talking in verse 7... Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. He's going to bring up, you know, pretty much how he's going to die in the cistern because he's going to say in verse 10, um, or excuse me, in verse 9, he's going to say, uh, he will die of hunger for there's no bread left in the city. So, you know, I I think he he answers a question really well and there's really not much, you know, I don't know. Why did he say he will die of hunger for there's no bread in the city? Well, it seems like he said there's no bread in that cistern down there. Yeah, but I guess that highlights the yeah. But if you've got dire circumstances of the whole city at this point, yeah. And if you've got a a uh, prisoner that's been thrown down into a cistern, I mean, at least in the dungeon in uh, Jonathan's house, I would assume they'd remember to bring him some food. But if he's just thrown down in a well somewhere, you know, maybe people forget he's there. Uh, maybe the officials, those guys, try and. I don't know, but one way or another, it's very likely that he's. If there's not a whole lot of food to go around the city, they're not going to make it a point. Oh yeah, let's get some bread and throw it to this guy yeah. who's down in the well. Right. So and he's not. Maybe get in food. other times they'd be pitching scraps and food and stuff down there to save his life. Yeah. Now I think there is a reasonable explanation as to why they chose this method of execution. Okay. And I, and I don't think it's. To, to make him suffer more because we've seen other forms like the stocks, for example. But the cistern was someplace, like you said, that's not public. Uh, He could have been forgotten down there. I think that's the way you put it. I think it's Mm -hmm. key. Jeremiah was making sense. His prophecies had come true while the liars that we talked about last week, their prophecies were obviously not coming to pass. Yeah. And at this stage of the siege, it was pretty sure that Jeremiah was a true prophet. They could not drag this man out to the middle of the city in a public place and crucify him or hang him or impale him or whatever or stone him, yeah. whatever the method of ex- execution would have been at that time. They couldn't do that. Mm-hmm. But they could do what Joseph's brothers did to him, throw right. him in a pit and put him in a place where nobody could see him, and eventually he'd starve and everybody will have forgotten about him. Yeah. And then they could save their own necks 
because they were in a bit of a bind here. They hated him. They wanted him to stop talking, but everything he was saying was coming true. Yeah, and some people were listening to him because you find in verse 2, Jeremiah tells the people pretty much if anybody goes out to the Chaldeans, he's going to live. He will keep his life Mm -hmm. as a prize of war and he will live. And there were people going because Zedekiah says he's afraid. Who's he afraid of in verse 19? Zedekiah said to Uh, Jeremiah, I'm afraid of the the Judeans who have deserted uh, to the Chaldeans. So people are listening to Jeremiah. Yeah. And they're leaving, just like you said, because Jeremiah is right. People are starting to recognize that his prophecy has all been true. So now you got people leaving, deserting Israel, going to the Chaldeans. Um, and, and probably, you know, they accused him over in the previous chapter when he was going down to Benjamin. Mm-hmm. He wasn't deserting to the Chaldeans, but they just assumed that. Which and they had every reason to believe that he was. because I don't know said, why he didn't. Yeah. Except, well, yeah, I do. Because he made the sacrifice of staying to try to get people to repent, to be God's spokesman. Mm-hmm. So there's an application yeah, right. there if we want to jump ahead. And that is, you know, the Lord told us to go into the world and mm-hmm. preach the gospel, not stay within the the church and preach the gospel. Yeah. And so he's going out into the darkness to shine the light. And that's why he's staying in Jerusalem. But, mm-hmm. you know, others... That that's an interesting point. So he says know, it before that somewhere. I'm looking. I think it's in chapter 21 or 22, where he's talking about Nebuchadnezzar coming in. Yeah, here it is, uh, verse nine. He who stays in the city. So this is uh, prior to this whole episode happening, most likely. Uh, we know the chronology is a little, I guess, requires some study, and there's some debate yeah. around. The, where the different chapters fall. Right. But this is what he said earlier. He who stays in the city will die by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence. But he who goes out and surrenders to the Chaldeans who you, who are besieging you shall live and shall have his life as a prize of war. So you have the same message being brought there. And that idea of surrender, not necessarily defecting and becoming a part of their army or anything, but... You know, at least surrendering to them is the idea. So that's probably why they thought that's what he was going to do, and that's probably why that guy uh, would not listen to him. I have the really difficult name to pronounce. Yeah, Hananiah's relative. He start with an I, whatever it yeah. was. Well, yeah, there were a couple guys. Anyway, anyway um, should we talk about his trip to Benjamin? Uh, maybe just briefly. Yeah, because. I think- you know, he's going down there, and, and when I first read through it, and I've read through these two chapters several times, um, I just sounded like I was, you know, I've... <laughs> I've read this so many folks, times. It's... Yeah. No, I'm not trying to boast. I just it, When I first read through it, I, I stopped, and I wondered, why is he going down to Benjamin during mm-hmm. a siege, and how is it possible for him to do that? Yeah, how's he going to get out there? Because... Uh, you know, and it makes you wonder what kind of siege this. Maybe that was when the Egyptians had caused them to pull back a little, and he thought, "Well, I can go take care of this business." Right. But a lot of people, you know, nobody knows for sure what he was doing. He had some business to take care of in his hometown, Benjamin, and um, or tribe, Benjamin, and so he's going down there. And the only connection we could make is possibly with chapter thirty-two. 
when he buys a field in Anathoth, his home. Right, which is in this land of Benjamin, as right. mentioned in verse 12. But he does that later when he's in prison. We assume uh, that's when he's in the house of Jonathan the secretary, which is a prison at this point. Mm-hmm. So he didn't get to, like you said, he didn't. He got stopped at the Benjamin Gate, so he didn't get to make the trip. But he was probably going to go down and do this object lesson that we've already talked about, of purchasing the field in Anathoth, Mm-hmm. in a way of symbolizing that in the future God would allow people to return and build vineyards and plow fields and have homes again in Judah. So maybe he was starting out to make that point, and then they stopped him. He was imprisoned, so he handled all the transactions from prison instead. And so you referred a while ago to how we kind of have to do some work in patching this together. Mm-hmm. If this is true then chapter 32 belongs right in the middle of chapter 37. Yeah. Which makes it, you know, confusing when you're trying to put it on a timeline, but I don't know that God really cared for us to put this in a timeline. He's wanting us to get the prophetic message. Yeah, and I think the timeline is certainly there. If you read the first two verses of chapter 32, I mean, even the heading I've got says, Jeremiah buys a field during the siege. And you can read the first two verses, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord... In the tenth year of Zedekiah, which was the eighteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar, which puts us in the time. And then verse 2 really just puts it all to rest. At that time, the army of the king of Babylon was besieging Jerusalem, and Jeremiah the prophet was shut up in the court of the guard that was in the palace of the king of Judah. Well, okay, that's the court of the guard, which is distinguished from the house of Jonathan the secretary, but, you know, Mm -hmm. whatever. It was after he tried to make a run for it. Yeah, so he's in prison. At this point, he's been taken out of the place he thought he was going to get killed in, in the house of the secretary. But he's he's in the court of the guard, and I guess he's got to be doing this remotely. I was looking in 32. I flipped over there to see if it said he walked out there to do this. But it seems to me that he had to... It seemed to me that he had to do this kind of remotely... Because it just says, and I bought a field at Anathoth from... Oh, yeah, Hanamel, he did it while he was in prison. Through couriers and yeah. things like that. Uh, you know, it's interesting. He has three homes in this section, in chapters 37, 38, and I wouldn't live in any of them if I had the choice. No. <laughs> you got the house of Jonathan, the secretary. And at first you're like, oh, Jonathan, you know, I bet he, he had some nice digs. Mm-hmm. But uh, no, that had been converted into a prison, and the right. word dungeon is applied to that. So, yeah. got a dungeon. The nicest place he stayed in was the court of the guard. Court mm-hmm. of the guard. So, that's a prison. No, thanks. Just a nicer prison than Jonathan's house. Yeah. And then you've got the cistern, which yeah. is muddy, and he's sinking in the mud. And I guess all he can do is just sit there or stand there in mud. Yeah. So those are the three places where uh, Jeremiah abides during these two chapters. And you can see what he went through on behalf of God's people and for God. This is after the time when he says, I'm going to quit. Mm-hmm. You know, and while being in stocks for 24 hours is bad, these this transition from one prison to another prison to a cistern back to prison again, I think that's even worse 
And, uh, you know, everybody's hungry. He's seeing children starve on the streets, Mm -hmm. Um, women being mistreated and abused and all this horrible thing. So uh, it's getting worse. And um, I think it's interesting to note that this word, since we brought up the three different houses he had, the word for dungeon and the word for cistern are the exact same in Hebrew. Uh, it's just a word, a B-O-R in Hebrew. Yeah. I'm not exactly sure how to pronounce it uh, 100%. But uh, this can be, it's like dungeon, cell, pit, or cistern. And I think it's that way. And I don't think we need to read this as to where he was in like a the cistern of, I don't think he got moved from the cistern of Jonathan's house to the cistern of the king's son, yeah, Malchiah's right. house. Yeah. But the word, I mean, it's taken in a few different ways. This happened probably because a lot of prisons, and you know this from New Testament history, some of the prisons were just like, you know, they were in the ground. They were pits in the ground that they would throw people in. They had the doors up there at the top. Uh, Paul was held, likely held, in a prison like that. They just opened the door and put him down in the, his little prison room would have been underground. Um, and so that's where this word is, that's where it gets this connotation. So in case maybe you run across anything, uh, I know there's a couple guys out there that think that this is pretty much 37, 38 or 2 count to the same thing. They're not. This is one of the things they're trying to use to say that it is. But I think the translators are wise to translate the words differently using dungeon for Jonathan's house in chapter 37 and cistern in 38. Right. Because the context tells you that you're looking at a well mm-hmm. in chapter 38, and if it's the house that Jonathan used with vaulted, I think it describes it as having a vaulted ceiling or something like that in chapter 37, then you've yeah. got two different things. The context tells you you got two different types of prisons. Yeah, definitely, because it says there was no water in the cistern but only mud. Yeah, I mean, I mean it wouldn't you're make talking sense. about a dry well. Yeah, making no sense to say there's no water in the prison, only mud. By the way, yeah. in Lamentations, he writes a little poetry about this experience, and mm-hmm. um, I thought I'd go over there. Lamentations 3.52. I have been hunted like a bird by those who were my enemies without cause. They flung me alive into the pit and cast stones on me. Water closed over my head. I said, I am lost. I called on your name, O Lord, from the depths of the pit. You heard my plea. Do not close your ear to my cry for help. You came near when I called on you. You said, do not fear. And that sets up a nice contrast to Zedekiah. we got Zedekiah talking, not listening, whispering, not listening, listening, not confessing. And then on the other hand, you've got Jeremiah and the Lord in this intimate back and forth where Jeremiah is praying to the Lord like Jonah from the belly of the fish. And the Lord is listening to him and answering him. And so we have this, you know, whatever Zedekiah was not in terms of leadership and weakness and cowardice, Jeremiah was. Right. With his courage and his reliance upon God no matter what.
Okay, so now we're going to apply some of these things from the text. And to me, I guess the most obvious applications come from the negative example that Zedekiah gives us about leadership. And I know just two episodes ago, we talked a great deal about leadership. We talked about the evil leaders. I think this gives us another perspective here. The first thing is that leaders listen. You compare that to Zedekiah as we saw him at the very beginning. It looked like he was willing to listen. He said, what is, he told uh, Jeremiah, please pray to the Lord our God. So it looks like he wants to listen to the word of God. But Drew, as you pointed out, I think you did a good job in saying that Zedekiah here is talking and not listening. Yeah, because verse 2 says he did not listen. Yeah, exactly. He and the people did not listen, but they're praying anyway. Yeah, and I think that says a lot about, you know, the way that we approach God uh, when we pray. And kind of just along the, the lines here, James chapter 1 and verse 19, you know, we have the admonition to be quick to listen and slow to speak. Uh, Timothy M. Willis has this quote here about the king. He says, this exposes, and this is from uh, verse 2, this exposes the truly tragic nature of Zedekiah's character. He represents those who hear the word, or who yearn to hear the word of the Lord, but yet are not willing to hear the word when it actually comes. He has ears to hear, but he does... um, he does not listen. So I think the idea here is seeking really isn't good enough. I guess seeking the word isn't good enough. We have to be willing to actually listen to it when that word comes. You know, we have to be willing to accept whatever the word is. Jeremiah or Jeremiah. Zedekiah here, it looks like he really did want the word of God, but he wanted the word of God to be the same word that came to Isaiah. Or not Isaiah through Isaiah to Hezekiah, which was the king of Assyria will not, he'll shoot an arrow up here, but it won't even touch the city. Um, Something I'm paraphrasing there. Um, But the idea was he's going to be thwarted in his, you know, in his attempt to take the city. And then we know from the story of uh, what happens when Sennacherib comes up to invade is God strikes them down. You know, I forget the number, but it's some in the thousands. Oh, yeah, yeah. Some ridiculous number of how many mm-hmm. he strikes down. Um, but you I, don't go to God that way, already deciding what God's Word says. Right. You don't go to God's Word already deciding what it's going to tell you, and then refusing to listen once it conflicts with what you expected to see. Right. You go into it open to whatever it says. Mm-hmm. That's the way you're supposed to listen. And yeah. Zedekiah is a poor example Mm-hmm. Of the kind of listening that leaders in particular ought to do, but but anybody, right? I mean, we've got to be able to pray fairly. I think is a good way to put it. You know, we've got to be able to accept whatever comes. It reminds me of Jesus in the garden saying, "Not my will, uh, but your will be done." Um, so leaders listen. Number one. Secondly, leaders are present, and you compare that to uh, Zedekiah, the second Zedekiah we saw. In chapter 37, verses 11 through 15, his name doesn't even pop up anywhere in those verses when Jeremiah is thrown into the house of Jonathan, the secretary, that had been made into a dungeon or a prison. He's not even there. And it's a hard thing to do to be a leader and to not even be present. You know what I'm saying? 
Yeah. There's an yeah. idea of your presence is required so that in situations like this, um, you can do the right thing. Obviously, Zedekiah probably would not have done. He was right purposely thing. not present. That way, yeah. you know, it, it was almost it wasn't just that they were doing it behind his back. I think he was he knew what was going on, and he was purposely not there so that he couldn't be accused one way or the other, right. taking one side or the other side. Yeah, so but, maybe avoidance is a better a better idea here than just absence. Yeah, you know, it's like whenever we have a tragedy in our nation. We expect the president to be there. And everybody yeah. knows from Bush's presidency, the one the one image that people conjure up and remember about him is when he went to Ground Zero after 9-11, and he had that fireman, had his arm around that fireman and our first responder of some kind, and had the bullhorn in his hand, and he's saying, you know, uh, we, we heard them, and now they will hear us. You know, that image... And then, of course, you know, when a hurricane comes, you know, the president is expected to be there or the local congressman or whatever. We expect our leaders to be on the scene. Preachers and elders are expected to be there after a death occurs or something. We need to show up and be in the right place at the right time. Right. The presence is a a major leadership quality, as you point out. Mm -hmm. And, again, Zedekiah fails on that mark as well. Yeah, probably purposefully. I like your idea about he's avoiding the issues there. Mm-hmm. Uh, thirdly, and this kind of ties into that, leaders are accountable. And you compare that to where we saw Zedekiah um, whispering in chapter 38, uh, verses 7 through 13. And then also where you find him, uh, no, not 7 through 13, sorry. Uh, that's in 37, 16 to 21. So that's where, um, when he is taken out of, Zedekiah sends for him and gets him out of the house of Jonathan. Uh, That was done in secret. And then that's very similar to what we read at the end of our section, where Zedekiah, like you mentioned, uh, listens to God in secret. He was not accountable for that. He did not want anybody to know that he had been trying to listen to God or, you know, he was trying to cover his own back. And that's really the opposite of how leaders should operate. They should be accountable, and there should be a degree of transparency uh, about their activities. It reminds me of Samuel. In 1 Samuel chapter 12, uh, he was a great leader for the nation of Israel, and then for uh, due to the own foolishness of Israel, um, you know, they chose Saul over Samuel, which is not a very good idea. But I really like what Samuel does when he gets up to make his farewell address. Uh, in verse 2 he says, Now behold, the king walks before you. I'm old and gray. Behold, my sons are with you. I've walked before you from my youth until this day. Here I am. Testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Whose donkey have I taken? Whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me and I will restore it to you. So he's putting, basically he's putting himself up to um, the... The scrutiny of the people. That's what I was looking for. Scrutiny of the people for them to say, well, Samuel, you remember you did this, you did that, you did Mm -hmm. this when you were our leader. They have nothing. Look in verse 4. They say, you have not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. Now get out of the way. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So here's a guy that is, you know, as a leader... 
he is able to be perfectly transparent because he's got nothing to hide. And Zedekiah here is not being transparent because he feels like he has to hide the he's fact playing, that he's... He's playing politics. Yeah. So, you know, it's what mm. all of our leaders seem to be doing now. Yeah. It's a, mm. definitely a far cry. Transparency is not something... I mean, I would like to feel like some of... Because, you know, we have the... This will date this episode that we're doing. But, you know, coming up here pretty soon, in the next year uh, or so, we have the presidential election coming up. And I would love to feel like, you know, these guys that are doing all these debates are being perfectly transparent, being honest about what they believe and where they stand. But, you know... They I, were saying the same thing four years ago and eight years ago. Yeah. You know, I will be transparent. Unlike the previous administration, I will, you yeah. know, let you into my heart and tell you everything yeah. that I'm doing and it's never yeah, nobody it never comes that. out that way and they're not even you know they can't even well I don't want to get down yeah. on, on that rabbit hole but you see the difference in Samuel and what we're talking about and then my last one here is that leaders act leaders do something and you compare that to the Zedekiah that you read about in uh, the first part of chapter 38 where he actually says to them in verse 5 you guys do what you want the king can do nothing against you so he did. He refuses to act. He lets other people kind of take the driver's seat there. He delegate, delegates out authority where he should not have. And that reminds me, first and foremost, of Pilate. Yeah. Pilate did the exact same thing. He just kind of washed his hands. Well, not kind of. He literally washed his hands of the situation. He invented washing your hands of the situation. Yeah. yeah. He said, you guys go ahead and do what you want. Did Pilate have authority to stop them from crucifying Jesus? Absolutely. Yeah, of course he did. Could have told him not to, but he could have started a riot in the city, but that's okay. Yeah. He could have, he's Rome. He could have handled it. Yeah, he gave them really, with not in the same words, but he gave them the exact same answer uh, for the exact same reason. He's afraid of the people. He's afraid of the crowds. Yeah. Hey, I got a couple that don't fit in within that, that. That was very good, and I, you know, when we went over the major themes of Jeremiah, do you remember if we mentioned leadership? I don't think we did. I don't think we did either. But we've got to add that back in oh, because, yeah. man, that this is a leadership manual mm-hmm. on the level of Nehemiah. Right. People yeah. always use the book of Nehemiah for leadership. And we've been seeing, especially in the last few lessons... Uh, I was actually thinking of Zedekiah. I didn't say this earlier because I couldn't find a good spot to throw it in. But I was thinking of him as like the anti... Nehemiah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Their names rhyme and that's where it ends in similarities. Yeah. Uh, couple of, a couple more lessons here. Here's one. Appearances can be deceiving. So at the beginning of our lesson, chapter 37... Zedekiah asked Jeremiah to pray for him, and we assume he's asking him to pray that the siege will end. And then yeah. the Egyptians inexplicably regain their strength and come on the scene and run the Chaldeans or the Babylonians off, and everybody starts thinking that the prayer was answered. But the word of the Lord comes to Jeremiah and says, Nope, mm-hmm. this is not what it seems to be. Babylon will destroy you, even if, like he pointed out in verse 10, yeah. even if... Even if they're, they're all wounded, wounded and beat up, they can defeat you. So don't get your hopes up. Yeah. The only thing that can ward off this this siege is repentance. And I don't know why in the world they didn't try that one, but that was not in their playbook. 
Yeah. It reminds me of Psalm 73, where the psalmist is struggling with his feelings over the prosperity of the wicked. And, um, you know, it's really testing his faith. And he is uh, praying about it, and he says, As for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. In his mind, like in ours, he thought the wicked should suffer and the righteous should do well, but it was turned upside down where the righteous were suffering and the wicked were prosperous. Right. But he goes into the sanctuary of God and discerned their end in verse 17 and saw that the end of the wicked is a slippery place of judgment. And he remembers the nature of God, how that he is righteous and he is merciful and loving and that he does he rewards the good and punishes the evil, and he works his way out of that crisis. But he had to get his minds off mind off the appearances in order to discern their end. And that's the mistake Sam, you were talking about Samuel a minute ago. He yeah. goes to the house of Jesse to anoint the next king of Israel. And uh, he sees the Eliab, the firstborn of Jesse, and he says, Surely this is the Lord's anointed. Yeah. And the Lord said, No, I've rejected him. The Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outer appearances, but the Lord looks on the heart. That's 1 Samuel 16, 7. Mm-hmm. Here we have another case where the appearances are deceiving. And uh, that's true of false prophets. You know, Jesus said, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. We've got to get our minds led by faith instead of by sight uh, mm-hmm. because appearances are deceiving. Here's, here's another one. This is actually, I saved my favorite one for last. Faith without confession is dead. You know, um, Zedekiah here has faith in God. Otherwise, he wouldn't constantly be asking Jeremiah for a word from the Lord. Now, maybe he's doing what you said a while ago, having in his mind what he wants the Lord to say, calling Jeremiah in. And when Jeremiah doesn't say it, he says, Oh, man, that's not what I wanted you to say. Yeah. But I think also there is a degree of faith in Jeremiah as a prophet, in God as true. Or he wouldn't be calling Jeremiah over and over again. He would oh, put yeah. him to death. So he has faith. He knows what's going to happen in a sense. But then he's afraid to confess it. Shh, don't tell anybody what you said to me or what I said to you. And if they ask, let me tell you what you should say to them. That's his attitude. So it doesn't get him far enough where he needs to be. It reminds me of many of the people on the Sanhedrin during Jesus' day. You know, you had Nicodemus who came to Jesus by night for fear of the Jews. Um, John says in John chapter 12, verse 42, that many of the authorities believed in Jesus, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue for they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. That was Zedekiah's problem. He loved the glory of men more than the glory of God. And so when they come clashing together, he goes with the glory of men first, right. which was the wrong choice to make. I was thinking about this in terms of illustrating it on a graph. Just picture this. This is a podcast, so I can't use visuals. But picture a line graph graph with a a vertical axis and a horizontal axis. On the vertical axis, you have um, attitudes going from at the top of the axis or line, um, confidence, and at the bottom, humility. 
And then the horizontal line, over on the left-hand side, you have wicked people. And then as you progress, you go to good people. And then as you get to the end, you've got God. And you have Zedekiah illustrated in a line that would look kind of like uh, the letter U that didn't get finished. You know, yeah, you start high. Because chapter 37 starts out with him full of confidence and listening to wicked people. Right. And then as you go on, he's losing his confidence, still listening to wicked people. And then in chapter 38, he finally listens to a good person, Ebed Melech. Was that his name? Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. He, he listens to the Ethiopian eunuch. How's that? <laughs> of the Old yeah. Testament. Yeah, that's right. But he's low on confidence. He's like that drowning guy grabbing for the He's, just any old log or anything you yeah, grab there. Yes. Yeah. And I would call it humility, but it's really insecurity. It's not yeah. it's not humility. Oh, and then he starts listening to God, but he never grows confident enough to confess his belief in God. So the line doesn't get to where it needs to be, which is in the upper right-hand quadrant of the graph. And I'm, I'm sure, I don't know if anybody can really picture this. But, you know, it doesn't get far enough. Because what where you need to be is where you're both listening to God and you're confident enough in God and in His Word that you're, you are not afraid to confess it. So when we come to Christ, it's not enough for us to just believe the Gospel that Jesus died for us and was buried and that he was raised. It's not enough for us to believe that Jesus lived, that he lives today, but we have to be willing to confess that. And that's not just saying the good confession at your baptism, but for your whole life, the way that you live and the way that you believe and feel and speak is a living confession of your faith. Your faith has to come out. It has to be worn on the outside. Faith must be external for it to be a saving faith. Mm-hmm. And so you must have obedience in your life along with the faith. Faith without confession is dead. Right. I think it's interesting to note, I'm looking for the exact quote here, um, but Keese in his commentary on this and the True From Today commentaries, he makes a really good point about right along the lines of your graph of self-confidence. He says, the prophet in the pit had more confidence than the king on the throne uh, and it had to do with where just like on your graph it had to do with where his trust was placed mm-hmm. or placed in evil people good people or god you know yeah. jeremiah's obviously is the correct portion of that graph that you're saying zedekiah is trying to get to but that you never quite gets finished mm-hmm. to where he's got confidence and god together he never puts those two things together. Jeremiah did, and that's what kept him, even though he's in a pit, you know, he's sticking to what he is, you know, sticking to the idea of a leader that we're looking at here. He's sticking to what he believes because God's on his side. Zedekiah is the opposite. You know, he never really gets God on his side because he's never able to confess. He's never able to really complete that faith. Mm-hmm. that you're talking about, and I really right. wish I could find that. He quote. doesn't follow in the steps of great leaders like Samuel, Hezekiah, Josiah, who both believed and were able to stand out in front of the people and say, I've made a covenant with my God. This is what we're going to do. Idolatry is wrong. Only God is true. We follow in his law, and we will be blessed. The people would have followed Zedekiah, 
and the officials would have failed in their attempt to stop him. Uh, he could have done something, just like Pilate could have done something, but he was weak, and yeah. uh, he failed. Well, um, that's a great lesson. I really enjoyed this, and um, so, you know, sad to see Jeremiah wrap up to an end. But we still have two Only lessons two left. Yeah. Um, maybe three. <laughs> I think two is what we've got planned. So we're uh, looking forward to finishing it up with you. We hope that you'll stay with us through the rest of the book of Jeremiah. And if you haven't done it, go to the website, the66.net, and check out what we've done so far. We've done other books besides Jeremiah that you might like checking out. If you want to stay up to date on what we're doing, follow us on Twitter, the 66 Podcast, and uh, send us a little feedback through email at um, akingsley at arcoc.com or dkaiser at arcoc.com. We always love to hear. on the Facebook I forgot about the Facebook page. Yeah. Uh, do we, we have a Facebook page? You could, you could help us out a lot by simply going to our Facebook page and liking it. Uh, yeah. The last time I looked, we had three likes. But that was like minutes after you had yeah. set it up. So I need to go well, check it out. We probably need to be posting some more things on that. Our episodes come out on that thing, too. Okay. So Andrew's our... Andrew handles all that stuff, so I'm obviously in the dark on that. <laughs> But uh, we're so thankful to all our listeners, and we hope that you'll join us next week when we come back for another episode.